Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics is brought to you by Mommy Steps Maternity Insoles, who are offering our listeners a special 20% discount off their truly fabulous insoles when you go to maternityinsoles.com and use coupon coupon code COMMONSENSE at checkout. Today's episode is also brought to you by PrepDish.com, a genius subscription service that sends you weekly real food-based paleo and gluten-free meal plans that include organized grocery lists and detailed meal prep instructions. Now that's a time saver. Give PrepDish a try for two weeks free, and for those two weeks, you'll have the answer to that dreaded daily question, what's for dinner? Right now, Prep Dish is offering our listeners a two-week trial for free. That's right, for free. Go to PrepDish.com forward slash common sense, all lowercase, right now and give them a try. Hi, everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you are listening to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, where we have smart conversations about pregnancy, healthcare, family life, feminism, culture, and all kinds of issues that go into our lives as parents. I'm the author of the book, Common Sense Pregnancy, which you can pick up over at my website, jeanfaulkner.com, or at your local bookstore on Amazon, <clears throat> Barnes & Noble, Noble, everywhere books are sold. If you want a copy signed and sent for your friend, your sister-in-law, or your newly pregnant co-worker, just let me know your pregnant person's name when you purchase a copy on my website, and I'll autograph it and get it out the door super fast. Now, let's see. We recently talked with a guest who has decided to delay vaccines for her son. Now, like a lot of parents, she has serious concerns about what vaccines could potentially do to her son, and she wants to wait a while until he's a bit older and sturdier before she starts vaccinating him. I think her perspective reflects the worries of a lot of folks, some who do and some who don't go on to have their babies vaccinated. Vaccinations are one of those hot trigger parenting topics that can set off a lot of argument, but I think it's also one where at least at some point parents can empathize. We all know how horrible it, it feels to hand our little ones over for shots. We all know the worry that our child will be the one who has a bad reaction. And of course, the biggest worry is that, you know, a lot of parents still think that vaccinations could be linked to autism. Now, while that theory has been widely disputed and refuted, we're still afraid. So, I mentioned that I'd be having another guest on the pod who represents the other side of the vaccination story. So we're going to talk with a pediatrician and with the executive director of Voices for, Vac for Vaccines. Before we do that, though, I want to say thanks to our sponsors who are helping us keep the lights on over here at Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics. And then I want to dig into the mailbox. Let me tell you, I got my Mommy Steps insoles last week month, and I haven't worn a pair of shoes without them since. Yes, even though I'm not pregnant. Seriously, my feet don't hurt when I'm wearing these insoles. And that's amazing because my feet have been sore ever since I had my first baby a real long time ago. We take a deep dive into foot health during pregnancy in episode 114, but do yourself a favor and save your feet 
knees, and back a lifetime of aches and pains by getting a pair of these custom, moldable, super thin, and totally comfortable insoles. And Common Sense listeners get a 20% discount when they go to maternityinsoles.com and use coupon code COMMONSENSE at checkout. Go check them out. I also want to give a big welcome to our newest sponsor, PrepDish.com. Here's how it works. Every week, Prep Prep Dish sends you an email that includes your menu, grocery list, and instructions for making everything in advance. Prep Dish's menus are paleo and gluten-free, and their detailed meal prep instructions are designed so you prep everything once on the weekend. That generally takes from one to three hours, and then dinner's ready for the rest of the week. What kind of dinners? Oh, good stuff, like smoky paprika chicken legs with a trio of roasted vegetables or turkey and zucchini lasagna. Yum. Right now, Prep Dish is offering our listeners a two-week trial for free. That's right, free. Go to prepdish.com forward slash common sense, all lowercase letters. Go on over there right now and give them a try. Now, let's answer an email. Perry writes, Hi, Jeannie. I haven't gotten your book yet, but I'm on the waiting list for it at the library. I'm pregnant for the first time and only about eight weeks along. Already my partner and I are arguing. He wants me to get genetic testing at the earliest possible date to make sure our baby is 100% normal. I don't really want the testing at all because honestly, we've been trying to get pregnant for a while and I'll be thrilled with whatever baby I get no matter what. We've already decided that we'll only have one child, and my partner wants what I suppose every parent wants, to raise a healthy child. He also doesn't think we have the financial or family resources to raise a child with significant health or developmental problems, and he would want me to terminate the pregnancy if there's anything wrong. I understand where he's coming from, and I don't disagree, but I don't want to do anything to harm this pregnancy, and I don't know what to do. Advice? Ooh, Perry. That's a hard one for sure, but it's not an uncommon situation. A lot of parents and families are in the exact same boat. You know, one partner wants to know everything and the other doesn't. One would terminate if there was something wrong, the other wouldn't. It's not always the father or co-parent who's the one who wants all the info either. Sometimes it's mom. It just depends. You know, the thing is this, this is a mighty complicated situation. And you're going to need some in-person professionals to help you out. That's what your midwife or doctor are for. He or she has counseled couples like yourself hundreds, if not thousands of times. Excuse me, got the sniffles. And they can help you and your partner work this out. Now, you know, it may be that your partner needs some reassurance that, you know, your healthcare provider should be able to provide that the odds are in your favor for having a perfectly normal child. Your partner, you know, might be worried about really specific health issues or maybe genetic issues that have been passed down in his family. He might be worried about major disabilities, or he might be thinking that getting prenatal testing is a guarantee of a perfect child and easy parenthood. Who knows? I don't. Whenever people have very strong opinions, though, there's usually a reason. Now, it might be that you need more information about what prenatal screening and diagnostic tests are available, how they work, how accurate they are, and what testing entails. I might recommend that you and your partner have a good chat with your provider and tell him or her that you're having this disagreement. 
Then, you know, absorb all the information, take a little time and hash it out together. This is the beginning of a million parenting conversations that you'll have going forward. And believe me, you won't always fall on the same side of the line, but you and your partner have to find a compromise and you'll have to make a decision. Ultimately, you, Perry, are the one who decides. Yes, you'll take input from your partner and your provider and your family, but this is ultimately up to you because you're the one who has to consent to testing or not consent. Funny how often we're talking about that these days, isn't it? Perry, I know I'm not giving you an absolute answer because there's no way anyone can make this decision except for you and your partner. Talk to people who are close to you and get their support. Ask other people's opinions. And then, as with everything, go with your heart and gut and do what you know to be best. I'm also going to recommend that um, if my book doesn't come through, you know, for you from the library pretty soon, just go buy yourself a copy Um, because there's a lot in there about prenatal screening and testing and relationship stuff. And I think you might want to refer to it, you know, throughout your pregnancy. Uh, All the best to you and your partner, Perry. I'll be thinking about you. All right. Now we're going to take another quick break and then we'll get this week's guests on the line. We're back and we are ready to dig in with this week's guests. Karen Ernst is the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines, a parent-driven organization supported by scientists, doctors, and public health officials that provides clear science-based information about vaccines and vaccine-preventable disease, as well as an opportunity to join the national discussion about the importance of on-time vaccination. Nathan Boonstra is a pediatrician at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. Let's get them both on the line. Hi, Karen and Nathan. How are you? Good. How are you, Jeannie? I'm doing really well. Nathan, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing okay. I'm glad to be here. Good, good. So I introduced you both before I got you on the on the line here. Um, but tell me first, where are you located in the country? Karen, where are you? I am in St. Paul, Minnesota, um, and uh, you know, no- Voices for Vaccines, the nonprofit that our podcast comes from, is a national nonprofit. So, um, I'm also all over the country and all over the world, but I'm physically in St. Paul, Minnesota. Got it. Got it. And and- I am just south in Balmy, Iowa, uh-huh. uh, Moines, <laughs> Iowa, and I'm a, a, a pediatrician there. Got it. Got it. At Blank Children's Hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a real name of a real children's hospital, not a, not like a... I, I get that all the time. Like People think... I say Blank Children's Hospital, and they think I'm going to then fill in something for Blank yeah. later on. Yeah. No, no, no. That is the actual last name of the guy who is yeah. we're named after. Yeah. Either that or you just really don't want people to know where you are. You know? Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. Well, I've been to... <laughs> St. Paul once, and I've been to Des Moines once. Mm-hmm. And, nice. um, yeah, I'm here in Portland, Oregon. So very nice. Yeah, yeah. Well, my first question is always the really hard one. And uh, Karen, I want to start with you. Okay. Who are you, and what do you do? I am first and foremost a mom. That is my most important role and the one I'm most proud of. I have three boys. I actually, my stepson just had a baby, which sort of blows my mind, which I suppose makes me a 
grandmother too. I'm way too young to be a grandmother though. And my, my, cause my youngest is, is in fourth grade. So sort of span the distance. Um, and, you know, I was an English teacher a long time ago until my youngest baby at 10 days old was exposed to chicken pox. And it sort of gave me some perspective on childhood immunization. And somehow I ended up in the position I am now, which is working with other parents on trying to make sure people feel good about vaccines and that our immunization rates are nice and high. So that's that's who I am in a nutshell. And what about the fun factor? What do you do for when you're not being a mom and you're not being the executive director of Voices for Vaccines? Right. What do I do for fun? You know, I am an avid reader. I love mm-hmm. reading. Um, I am right between books right now. Actually, I, I'm listening. I'm usually listening to an audiobook and reading a book with mm-hmm. my own eyes. Um, but I'm just about to start. Uh, I forget what it's called. So, I think it's Someone Oliphant is doing just fine. Mm-hmm. I'm totally biffing that name, but I love, I love mm-hmm. to read. And I was a good English major for a lot of years and read all of the books that you're supposed to read. And now I get to read all That's the books that I want to read. That's kind of indicative of reaching a certain stage in life where you no longer have to finish the books you don't really like or read <laughs> all the books on the should list. Exactly. Yeah. There is no, I have yeah. no more should list. It's I wish I could want. say the same. Yeah. So Nathan, it's your turn. Who are you and what do you do? I am a husband and a father also of boys. I got two boys and I'm uh, so many boys uh, between the two of you. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm a general pediatrician here at Blank Children's Hospital. And I got really interested in vaccine advocacy. I've been interested in it for a long time. It really, the roots of it were in medical school when I started to see areas of the state that had vaccine hesitancy and got really interested in where people got their information and how to get it from uh, reliable sources and whatnot. And then I went into becoming a pediatrician and saw the effect of not immunizing, saw the kinds of diseases that uh, you can catch Mm -hmm. if you're not immunized. And since then, I've just been really interested in making sure that parents have really good information uh, when they make these decisions and also helping providers in my area um, just talking about how to talk to parents and, and and whatnot. So that's been interesting to me. And in terms of the fun factor, if you follow me on Twitter, which is uh, PedsGeekMD Twitter handle, you will find kind of me alternatively spouting off about childhood advocacy stuff, including vaccines and other pediatric issues, but then also like Star Wars, geekdom, Marvel, gaming, that kind of stuff is kind of my second life and set of interests. And 90s rap. Okay. Occasional rap parody. Yeah. yeah 90s. Oh, and 90s rap. <laughs> Occasionally. I try, that's the part that I do try to keep under wraps, oh, but oops. it pops out every once in a while. <laughs> it's out. <laughs> I have somewhere hiding on and my we Facebook also page a, that- a, a short flu vaccine, like a flu vaccine centered parody of a Hamilton song that I might have performed myself, which was probably not the wisest thing that I've done. <laughs> How many listeners are going to go yeah. deep and find that it's now? There. Yeah, they'll find it. Yeah. And you guys are co-hosts on a podcast. Let's well, talk, about, talk it. Tell me about it. Our podcast and it's, you know, the, the idea behind it is simple. Um, Pew Research actually just came out with a, a 
I guess, a study or I don't know what the, it's called when Pew Research does a thing. And they said that 50 percent mm-hmm. of parents or 50 percent of the public rather follow news about vaccines. And so I always like to think of the fact that we are the podcast for 50 percent of the public. <laughs> <laughs> but. There you go. But a lot of people have become really interested in vaccines because there's so much news about them right now, whether or not it's or whether it's a flu shot or cancer vaccines or, you know, all the new technologies that we have that are exciting and interesting. And, you know, I think it's only going to become more interesting as the technology develops, but also because it's an interesting Mm -hmm. social topic that people have a lot of different perspectives on it. And we really try to clarify where the truth lies and um, what parents should know and what the general public should know and bring really interesting guests on who know a heck of a lot more than I do, certainly, and sometimes even more than Nathan does. Usually, yeah. So I am going to probably play devil's advocate a little bit. And Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, my personal position about vaccines is, yeah, good things. I like them. I, you know, spent about 20 years working as a labor and delivery nurse and had literally thousands of parents, you know, talk to me about vaccinations. And um, also as a family history, my brother and sister were among the last patients in California to develop polio. Oh, wow. Children. Mm, Yeah, it was back in the 50s. And they were little kids. I think it was 1958. And they both had to spend some time in L.A. County Hospital um, with polio and they both were, you know, came out fine. Um, but you know, that's sort of my platform Mm -hmm. that said, you know, while most parents are fine with all the vaccines that are recommended and on the schedule that standard of care, some, and over the years, it's been a growing number are Mm -hmm. very, very concerned about, a lot of issues, the growing number of vaccines their children are expected to have, you know, starting with hep B at birth. And right. mm-hmm. they're also concerned about the number of vaccines that are bundled together rather than single dose. Sure. They're worried that their child's immune system is being compromised, that their neurologic health will be damaged. Um, parents of color are concerned about um you know, what exactly is happening here? Because there's a lot of history in our country of doing some scary stuff um, and using people as experiments. There is a lot of fear. And, you know, I know about all the studies that have refuted these concerns and the greater, you know, science and medical community feels really secure in their knowledge that vaccines are safe, but parents aren't satisfied. Mm -hmm. And it's simply not enough for doctors to say that vax don't cause autism because they haven't figured out yet what the answer to that question is. And that leaves this huge void or, you know, a worry hole for parents who are frightened. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, you know, so that's sort of, I hear this a lot that, you know, parents who are deciding about vaccinations, that they're scared. Right. They're smart, too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're not it's not like we're just talking about a population of really spoiled parents or really ignorant parents. It's kind of across the board. So there isn't a question in there, but that's sort of, you know, <laughs> I bet you're hearing all of you've heard all of this. Absolutely. And, you know, I think 
part of what happens too is that I think there's some natural fear that comes with taking your healthy child and poking them with the needle. Oh, I know. And that feeling like, oh, my kid's going to hate me. They're going to know I'm the one who drove them there for the torture. <laughs> right? Yeah. I remember when my son got his first series of vaccines at two months, mm-hmm. uh, I brought him in and I was so scared. Yeah. Uh, and I and I was completely fine with him being vaccinated. And I was still scared. Yeah. And, you know, the nurses were giving him the shots and he was screaming because everything made him scream because he was two months old. And I was, I mean, crying, Mm -hmm. tears rolling down my face. Mm -hmm. And the doctor came in and he's like, it's okay. Stay here as long as you need to. And then, you know, when you leave, you can just leave whenever you want to. This room is yours for as long as you Mm -hmm. need it. And so, so I nursed him and then he was calm and then he was fine. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it was, you know, by the time my youngest came along, I was like, yeah, poke him a lot. It's yeah. fine. He'll cry. He'll stop. Uh, but it's really hard to do that to your baby. You're already sleep deprived and you're exhausted and babies are scary and it, it's all overwhelming. So I think a certain amount of that is natural. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of what makes parents nervous is healthy, that you you shouldn't just say, do whatever you want to to my child. You, you should have some knowledge about it. Um, and on the other hand, I'm, I'm going to say something and then I'm going to, you know, put Nathan on the spot. On the other mm-hmm. hand, I think that parents like me have to recognize sort of where our limitations are. There's only so much information I can get on the internet. There's only so much information I can read about without having the totality of knowing immunology or the totality of having a medical degree. Um, And so at at some point, you know, you, you have to become knowledgeable and know what questions to ask, but then you also have to trust your provider, a provider like Nathan, who probably, who I know encounters this all the time because he has vaccine hesitant patients in his Mm -hmm. practice. Yeah, I do spend time talking with families. I mean, kind of talking through the same kinds of concerns that you were just describing. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the the issue is not so much the amount of information, but it's a synthesis of information. It, it's it's very difficult, I think, even as somebody who spends a fair amount of time reading the research, to be able to go through and say, well, this is really good research. This other research here is weak research or it's it's less reliable because of it's maybe published in a journal that's less reputable or whatnot. It takes a lot of expertise beyond my expertise to actually synthesize a lot of that and put it into a coherent picture and try to figure out what the reality is in terms of something like figuring out what does, you know, does do vaccines affect, does, does a vaccine cause X, Y, or Z? And so I think that's sometimes where uh, some of that disconnect comes, because like you mentioned, you do have intelligent people go and read and they'll find something and um, you can find almost, you know, support for a lot of things on the internet and you can find things that look fairly reputable on the internet and it takes a fair amount of discernment. 
And so I think that that's really important for providers to be able to do is to, when you have that kind of uh, patient, parent, provider relationship, to be able to sit down with the family and say, I, you know, I want to hear your experience. I want to know where you're coming from and what you're worried about. And can we figure this out together? Because there is generally an answer there um, to the, the, that's out there. Um, if people are willing to kind of sit down, listen, if they trust in a medical provider um, that they're willing to work with and listen to and try to figure out that answer. You know, I sometimes feel a little sorry for pediatricians because, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of women uh, – come through their prenatal care and their birth experience feeling really patronized and bullied, especially in the last, you know, couple of decades where induction rate and C-section rates skyrocketed and women are becoming savvy that, yeah, they didn't actually need that induction. They didn't actually need Mm -hmm. that C-section. They just got manipulated through the system and delivered okay. that way. So then they get to their, and, and they, they know this. Women know this now. A lot of women know this. And so then they get to their pediatrician who hasn't been involved in this relationship sure, sure, sure. at okay. all. Um, and they're coming in with cynicism and hostility and anger and fear. And they do not want to be manipulated again. And they don't want their mm-hmm. children to be manipulated and I feel, you know, like this is part of the relationship dynamic that a lot of people have in their healthcare these days is they're savvy and they're scared, you know, and that's, that's a dangerous combination sometimes, I think. You know, I always say to people that childbirth is uh, one of the entry points into vaccine hesitancy. That's, you know, just having fears about vaccines. And I think it's, you know, exactly for the reasons you state. And also some women really have hard childbirth experiences or they, they feel really upset about their childbirth experiences. And then the very next thing they have to do is start bringing their babies into the doctor. Uh, and, you know, I think that there there are some opportunities there for parents before they get to that point to start having a relationship even before their babies are born, even around the topic of immunization. I know Nathan does some work with par- expectant parents around immunization. Um Mm-hmm. Because you you meet with parents, correct? I do. I I actually give a quarterly class here at the Children's Hospital, so families can attend it and come. And I give a talk for half an hour, forty five minutes, and then I spend the next fifteen minutes or however long people want to stay going over individual issues that uh, questions that parents have about it. And sometimes it's nuts and bolts stuff like, well, what are the shots and when do they get them? And sometimes it's the hesitancy that they have or they have questions about uh, ingredients or they have questions about the number of vaccines, the very things that we've been talking Mm -hmm. about. And uh, that's really where those conversations have to start. Mm -hmm. And so I would encourage families to uh, you know, having those conversations within the family so everybody knows where, you know, where, so that spouses know where each other stand and whatnot, but then um, probably getting information from a reliable source early on. And if that's going to be, you know, the person that they choose to eventually be their baby's pediatrician, they may want to reach out to that pediatrician and see, you know, 
what do you think? And, and can you answer my questions? Can you help me understand this if they're, if they're hesitant or look into what resources are at in their area to, to answer those questions early on? That's kind of a privilege for a lot of parents that live in mm-hmm. urban areas or peri-urban areas and have access to medical care, have mm-hmm. good health insurance. But for a huge swath of the population, that's not happening. You know, it's a two hour drive to get to a pediatrician and they only get to go to the one that takes their insurance. You know, that's mm-hmm. so it's it's great that you guys are providing the resource of um, Fax Talk because hopefully more and more people can, you know, get that kind of information. But that still doesn't fill the worry hole. You yeah. know, it doesn't. And, and you know, I I always I don't think I've ever met a pediatrician who's okay with a parent who vaccinates but is worried or who just submits and Mm -hmm. and doesn't feel good about it. Uh, And I spend a lot of time, I know Nathan does too, um, talking to providers about ways to reach patients outside of, oh, now my cats are going to fight. I'm sorry. That's okay. I don't mind. I've got a dog right here who wants my attention badly. (laughs) (laughs) My cats both decided to come in here and start fighting. That's Um, okay. I, I really, it's really important for parents to leave the the pediatric room feeling confident. And I know both Nathan and I spend time talking to pediatricians about how to engage with parents outside of the exam room. I think Nathan is an excellent example of a pediatrician who makes himself available on social media. And if you follow his Facebook page or his Twitter account when he's not talking about Star Wars, he often is answering real questions from parents that that there are pediatricians who really are available and you know another one just off the top of my head is um, Dr. Wendy Sue Swanson from Seattle Children's Uh, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of a lot of pediatricians who really make themselves publicly available and are good sources of information and I really do encourage parents to sort of seek those pediatricians out those experts out and and to feel good about that. But I would love it if every pediatrician could be somewhat available in that way. Because, uh, you know, as Nathan was talking about, building that relationship of trust is very important. Uh, and especially if your baby is your very first one and, and you're just expecting him or her to come into the world, going in in a position of trust is very helpful. Yeah. And, you know, when we talk about you know, how it doesn't necessarily fill the worry hole there. We're talking about the fact that worry and uh, those kinds of concerns aren't, emotion is not always answered by facts or data Mm -hmm. and whatnot. And so when you have had the experiences that you're describing, you know, what can we do except provide the facts and also try to build that trust? And that's what I, yeah, Every pediatrician that I know seeks to do that. We want to have good relationships with our our families. Uh, We also want to provide the best information that we can. Um, And then ultimately, it's the parent's decision. But we still have the obligation to make sure that we're making the recommendation for what we believe to be the right decision medically, just like we would if we were taking care of a very ill child and there is a right course of treatment that 
is going to be associated with a better outcome and, of course, a treatment that's not, we're going to make the best recommendation that we can. Uh, and so that's our obligation. We can't kind of go back on that and say, well, but it's okay to not make the best choice when we have so much good data. It's still, when it comes to immunization, still their choice, but it's still our responsibility to make sure that, that we're making that good recommendation and that they understand that. Yeah. I, I hear, you know, I'm, I get to work a lot in the global arena around maternal health. And I hear a lot of people making the comparison of parents in developing countries who will you know, line up for hours to get vaccines for their children. But usually they're not getting the same vaccines as many as often. And I don't know that it's a fair comparison. Um, but I think that there's this perception that a lot of parents have a hard time making that goes from the personal health, um, you know, from the personal health of their children to expanding mm -hmm. that to the public health of their community. Sure. And then even as far as global health. And that's a right. pretty big, that's a hard stretch for some families mm -hmm. to make. Well, the good news with vaccinations and the ones that we recommend uh, is that we do it for kind of all of those reasons. So we're not recommending any vaccines that are riskier to the child, but then we're doing it because we want, you know, it's it's better for public health if they get it. Everything that we recommend for a child benefits that child. It's better for the child themselves to be immunized than not. The right. risk of the disease itself is higher to that child than the risk of any vaccine, even the combination of vaccines that we give, even the schedule that we use. Mm -hmm. um, and then it also has you know, and then to refuse that because it's your own child is one thing, but then at least people have to consider the fact that it doesn't only affect their child. It also right. affects people in the community. It can yeah. seriously affect people in the community that are immunocompromised or that can't be vaccinated or that have a variety of medical conditions that put them at higher risk for complications of these diseases. Mm -hmm. So you can't, you can't separate that from it. It's part of it, but ultimately it still comes down. When we're pediatricians, we are, are, what we're advocating for, what we're looking out for is that patient, mm -hmm. and they're our number one priority. So yeah. if I'm going to recommend that this child be immunized, I'm going to do it because I believe that this child is much safer to be immunized than not immunized. Right. And yeah. I think the other thing, too, when we're looking at global health is, you know, when we're thinking about the diseases we're preventing, I am betting that if you asked a parent who lived in a poor corner of the globe, would you like your child to be safe from chicken pox? Would you like your child to be safe from hepatitis B? Would you like your child to be safe from hepatitis A and not get sick from these diseases? They would say, yes, please, now. Um, that, mm -hmm. that these diseases that are commonly less known and people think maybe aren't a big deal, end up being a big deal sometimes. And having kids not get sick is really wonderful. Uh, and, you know, I think sometimes learning a little bit about the stories of those diseases can help inform us a little bit more. So I think, you know, when we're looking at the schedule, a lot of times people think, well, why are we using all of these vaccines? And sometimes when I look at it, I think, well, look at this, we're preventing all of these diseases. And that's, that's mm -hmm. a good thing. Uh, and, and I have a little bit of a bias, I have to admit, because I have some personal experiences with um, two diseases that people don't often think to vaccinate against. I had a, a classmate who uh, 
had a younger sibling who died from um, meningococcal meningitis when I was in junior high. And uh, I had a student in the school where I was teaching forever ago who died from chicken pox. And so I've seen diseases get real bad real fast. And I'm glad that we can prevent them. And I was the fool who, when my child got his chicken pox vaccine, I cried because I was grateful. I obviously, I cry in front of doctors a lot, as I am <laughs> admitting here. Um, <laughs> but you know, I'm 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 glad for those di- for those diseases to be prevented. And I want people when they bring their children in, I really want them to feel good about protecting their children from those diseases. I really want them to know about those diseases and to feel glad that we have these protections and to feel comfortable with how safe the vaccines are. And I think that's why I'm so grateful for doctors like Nathan, who are again, public, but also he works so hard with his patients. And I want parents to really seek out those good doctors and seek out that good information and and learn as much as they can. So when, uh, so my kids are older than yours. My youngest is 18 and, um, we, so you, we keep talking about chicken pox and back in the day, not all that long ago, um, when my oldest kids were little ones, one of them picked up chicken pox and then 10 days later, the next one got it. And then my sister Mm -hmm. sent her daughter over so we could get it out of the way. And it was like a month and a half long parade of itchy spots in our family. And that's how it had always been throughout time. And so, you know, that is something that parents will say, you know, for all this time, we've gotten away without having to get all these things. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I've had shingles, which is, you know, you, you get that perhaps you, you might get that after having chicken pox when you're an adult, I mm-hmm. wouldn't want it. I'd get my kids vaccinated for it now, but you know, that's another side of the coin is why do our kids today need that much vaccination? You know, with every vaccine that's added, it's, there's a good reason why that one there's I, I like to bring up the fact that there are actually a whole lot of vaccines that are out there that aren't on the recommended schedule there's vaccines for common cold viruses out there that we don't use on the recommended mm-hmm. schedule um, because they just don't have the benefit profile that it's needed or all that beneficial to give to every single person mm-hmm. um, so the ones that are on do have that that benefit ratio to them so chickenpox like you brought up you're right. Like most people got through chickenpox mm-hmm. fine, but about a hundred kids died or a hundred people died a year prior to the vaccine. That's smaller than some diseases, but not negligible. It's also m- worth mentioning that those are largely in people without other medical problems. About over half of them were in people without like significant underlying health issues that put them at high risk. About 10,000 hospitalizations a year, but the, uh, from chickenpox prior to the vaccine. But the the main thing that you mentioned, the shingles, is actually, I think, one of the main benefits because shingles has a much higher morbidity, mortality, the older you get. And it's about a quarter or a third of the population gets shingles. And if people at home don't know quite how this works, but when if, if you don't, this is how it goes. Once you've had chicken pox as a kid, that that virus actually stays dormant in some of your nerve roots. And it can pop out later on down the line in a quarter to a third of the population as painful shingles in one area of the body. And it can actually be in the eye or in other 
more sensitive areas that can cause more damage. Um, and so that's pretty serious. It can be very serious. To it's get awful. Um, if you can reduce bloody that, awful. Yeah. If you, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. If you can reduce that significantly for your kids and say, you know, by immunizing as chickenpox now, and the studies that we've seen, we can look at there are kids that undergo, say, chemo or are immunosuppressed in other ways, they'll get childhood yeah. shingles yeah. sometimes. The kids that are immunized in studies have much, much less childhood shingles. And so if we can give the our kids the gift of, hey, as you get older, your risk of shingles is a lot less, that's kind of a big deal. Um so we often think of just the chicken pots itself and the, the, the one week of itching as that's no big deal. But the other problems that chicken pox can cause are a big deal and they're reduced a lot by the vaccine. Pretty much every vaccine is on the schedule for a reason like that. It either causes the, the, the disease itself causes some kind of bad complication we want to prevent in the population. It causes a lot of hospitalizations maybe, or it has a high mortality where if you catch it, the chances of dying is really high. And, and so there's a variety of reasons why we have, there's a little thing called survivor's bias where we think about like, Oh yes, we all survived through X, Y, and Z as a child. So why is it a big deal? Well, that's great. A percentage of the population did not actually survive without car seats or seatbelts or these laws or those laws or whatnot. And when you're used to it, it's not as big of a deal when it's just kind of the fact of life. When you look at the stats of it, you're like, well, shoot, we could have saved those lives if we had had this intervention or that intervention, or in this case, these vaccines back then. So, yeah, you're talking about the, you know, the, the shingles nightmare. I'm just remembering the daycare nightmare. It was horrible. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't just a week. It was forever. Because, of course, then, you know, you can't take your kid back to preschool or kindergarten for a long time. It's just a mess. It's a mess. Yeah, it's it's pretty terrible. Yeah, and you know the the other thing to consider, you know, when we talk about the risks of not vaccinating, um, because because that's another way to think about vaccines are the benefits and the risks of vaccinating. Right. But the risks also of not vaccinating really can be lost time at work. You know, uh, in Minnesota last year we had a measles outbreak, and seventy nine people got the measles, but six hundred kids had to stay home from school. Yeah. And that's for, you know, three, four weeks, they have to stay home for school. And then those parents, of course, need to take time off of work or find childcare for those children who are school age now. So it's it there's all sorts of things to take into account. But, you know, certainly number one, as Nathan mentioned before, is we don't want kids getting sick. Yeah. Whooping cough, the the pertussis Mm -hmm. vaccination Mm -hmm. is a real convincer for a lot of parents that yeah. Um, they choose not to yeah. vaccinate their babies and little kids, and then they're exposed to whooping cough or pertussis, and they realize, oh, <laughs> oh, that's what the mm-hmm. vaccination was about. Yeah. Yeah, it's a real risk. You know, whooping cough more, it, it the reason is because whooping cough is yeah. extremely common, unlike measles, which is, you know, largely uh, not in the United States. It has to be brought in from overseas. Pertussis continues to, pertussis, which is whooping cough, continues to circulate in the United States because our vaccine for that does, in fact, wear off over Mm -hmm. time. So in adults, you have 
transmission of yeah. whooping cough and whatnot. But the vaccine is extremely good at one thing, and that is protecting babies. Uh, when they get it, their chance of surviving whooping cough increases mm. quite a bit uh, if they've been immunized. And then that leads into the conversation about how important it is that pregnant moms get a Tdap during that third trimester of their pregnancy because babies cannot get the whooping cough vaccine usually until they're two months old. And there's a gap there at which they are most at risk from whooping cough and the complications and potentially dying from whooping cough, but they're less protected. But the vaccine during pregnancy protects them during that gap fairly well. There's studies both on efficacy and safety. When mom gets um, the Tdap, those uh, antibodies go through the placenta, they go to the baby, and they circulate in the baby during that gap time so that that baby has their best chance if they're, if they're exposed to, to whooping cough. And then also, don't you recommend that, you know, dad, grandparents, nanny, aunts and uncles, the people that are going to be in their immediate newborn community also make sure they're vaccinated? Yeah, it's good to be up to date on your adult Tdap uh, or your adolescent Tdap, just your Tdap in general, especially if you're going to be around a baby. But when they've actually looked at the studies on, so that's kind of called cocooning, where we want everyone uh, to be immunized. When they've yeah. looked at studies on that, it might help a little, but it's not great just because sometimes pertussis can be transmitted. It can colonize in our noses and stuff. And so when you're all up in a baby's face and nuzzling and stuff, uh, your Tdap, right? Your Tdap is not nearly as good of a of a protection as would be antibody circulating in the baby because mom got her uh or her Tdap during. Pregnancy. And it's important to know because sometimes women feel like, well, I'm breastfeeding, so maybe that will help. But the getting the Tdap during pregnancy is really so much more effective at giving baby those antibodies than breastfeeding is. Yeah. So a lot of families prefer to start, you know, most vaccinations later. Not a lot of families, but, you know, families that are concerned about um, vaccinations. They feel like they feel better about it if they do a staggered schedule, you know, mm -hmm. vaccinate later, do them over a longer period of time. But um, a lot of pediatricians have a problem with that. Why? You know, it kind of depends on what vaccines and how they want to stagger it to, as to what the risks are to doing that. First of all, the, 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 the schedule that we have, the one that's recommended, is the one that is the most evidence-based. Okay, we add things are added to the schedule and they're studied while they're on the schedule. And um, when we're looking long-term at retrospective studies, we're looking largely at people who are immunized on time. So we have a lot of data on the on how well this schedule is working how safe it is and whatnot when you start to play with that you start to work then with variables that that uh, can increase the risk so there's no study that shows that stretching them out or not giving more than one vaccine at a time there's no good data out there no reputable study that shows that this has any benefit at all but the risks to stretching it out are a couple of things number one and probably the main one is any vaccine that you then delay you increase that window where if the child's exposed to that disease, they can have a worse outcome because they don't have those antibody protections that are provided from the vaccine. The other aspect to this is that if you're going, if, you, if you're not just delaying, but you're going multiple times, you do an alternative schedule in which you have to go in more than once uh, for shots you normally would have gotten all in one visit, you're 
going back into the clinic, so you're potentially exposing yourself to something in the waiting room, that's one thing, but also this causes more pain for the child. It's not fun for the baby. There is actually a study or two where they've looked at stress responses to the vaccines. And if you get more than one at once, that doesn't really matter. Like it doesn't bother a baby much more to get a couple of vaccines than to just get one vaccine. So you get the same basic cortisol spike, a stress hormone spike. Uh, if you go in multiple times, you're getting that stressor more times. And so that's just, and there's no you know, evidence that that's long-term a problem if you're doing it, but it's not really all that humane. Uh, when you're getting, you know, the same shots, but you're getting them in multiple visits and getting more pokes, like more instances of pokes than if you would have gotten them all at once. So those are the reasons we generally don't recommend them. Now, I will talk to families. I work with families all the time. I always recommend getting shots on time uh, on the schedule. But if that's really something that a family's not willing to do, um, I work with them as best as I can, and I try to work out, okay, we really need to make sure you got your whooping cough vaccine on board right now because your baby's little, et cetera, and we can work with that. But I know in my heart that it, that child is not getting as good a protection uh, from disease as they could be getting. So I had somebody bring up the Hep B vaccination, which okay. is the one mm -hmm. that babies often get within an hour of birth. Mm -hmm. So what about that one? That one seems like sure. that one should be totally negotiable. Yeah, here's the the reason that we give that at birth is, first of all, we, we certainly give it to anybody who's hepatitis B, who's, where the mother is hepatitis B positive or uh, hepatitis B status is unknown. They need a hepatitis B shot and they need an immunoglobulin at birth so that they, that baby doesn't catch hepatitis B. Mm -hmm. That's for, that, that I don't think most people are gonna argue with that. The question is why the recommendation now that's been for a number of years now that every baby, regardless of maternal hepatitis B status, get their hepatitis B uh, vaccine at birth. It's really hard to make the argument that it's just us trying to give more vaccines because it doesn't really change your schedule. Even if you didn't get it at birth, you'd still get it at two, four, and six months usually. Yeah. Um, so it's not like it's an extra vaccine that we're just throwing in there. Um, but what we're worried about is the fact that even with the testing that we have, it's not perfect. So there's, you know, no test is perfect. So sometimes there's false negatives on testing. Sometimes hepatitis B is transmitted uh, or a mother contracts it actually after um, testing. That has happened. All of these are small and low risk, but they do add up. And so when they took a look at all these things, and also there's even, to be quite honest, communication errors and lab ordering errors and those kinds of things that happen because we're human and we make mistakes. And so when all of those add up, there are a fair number of babies that are born that uh, have, uh, that are at risk for hepatitis B that wouldn't be getting their hepatitis B vaccine at birth, which could provide them good protection. So as a safety net, it's recommended that everybody get it. At the same time, it's worth pointing out that hepatitis B is so much more dangerous and devastating to a baby than it is to a adolescent or, or an adult. So uh, of if, if a baby catches hepatitis B, that baby has 
uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the stat off the top of my head, but it's, it's like a 90 plus percent chance of it becoming chronic hepatitis B. And that baby actually then in its lifetime has about a 25% chance of dying from the complications of hepatitis B, whether that is um, liver cancer or liver failure. Mm -hmm. So this is all bad. Like we want to prevent this as much as we can. And the safety data on hepatitis B at birth is good. So yes, is it one of those things where I talk to a family and if they're really not going to get it, uh, I'm not as nervous as if a family is not going to get their whooping cough Mm -hmm. vaccine at at two months. But at the same time, again, when you go with the numbers, it's safer to just be immunized than to not. Right. And, you know, just a a couple other things, too, about that hepatitis B vaccine is sometimes there's some confusion about how hepatitis B is transmitted. For for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. it's gotten the reputation of a disease that's transmitted only through needles or through sexual sexual activity, which is not true. I, I was very surprised as a new mom to learn that hepatitis B can live outside of the body for up to two weeks. And so there's, you know, a lot of transmission that occurs and people get hepatitis B and they're not drug users and they maybe aren't even sexually active and and they don't know how they got hepatitis B. Uh, it's sort of a, a mystery. So I think that's an important point to clear up, but also that a lot of people are nervous about the United States and the CDC schedule and how we look at that. But the recommendation for babies to get the hepatitis B vaccine is a World Health Organization recommendation, too, that the WHO really would prefer that all babies all over the world be vaccinated against hepatitis B at birth because it is it is a worldwide global health problem. Um, but it's also an individual baby problem, too. So then, you know, I've just got a couple more questions for you guys. I feel like we could talk about this all day long, but Nathan, this one's for you. Um, sure. So what happens when you have a parent that just says no? Yeah, that's a good question. So if we talk about controversies in vaccinations among pediatricians, whether or not vaccines are safe and effective is not really a controversial topic, but should we continue to see families that don't immunize is actually a really interesting and controversial topic that we do talk about. I am of the opinion that I I always want to continue to see my families. Uh, I want to take care of the child. Uh, my, you know, the reason that I got into this job is it's most important for me to make sure that a child has good medical care. And so even if, and whether it's immunizations or something else, if I don't feel that the family is making maybe the wisest choice for, for a child, which happens in lots of different areas, I don't want to stop seeing that kid. I want to continue to work with that family and try to make sure that this child gets the best care that they can get. Um, there are definitely pediatricians with the philosophy, with 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 the concerns that of a few things. Um, they're concerned about a family that doesn't immunize and brings the child into the waiting room and could potentially expose a newborn baby to a disease. They're concerned that a family that uh, doesn't immunize because we believe very strongly in immunizations. Uh, the you know some pediatricians are concerned. Well, if you don't really agree with me philosophically on this. It might be hard for us to come together philosophically on the entire, you know, care of your child. So why do you want to come and see me? So there's those kinds of of issues. I tend to sit down and just talk with a family. And every time they visit, they know me. 
Uh, they know where I'm coming from. And so they know I'm going to bring this up. They know that we're going to talk about it at each visit. And I can only do so much. I can talk with them and try to um, answer their questions as best that I can. And ultimately, if it comes down to them uh, not immunizing, then the best I can do is keep a very watchful eye for any of these diseases that this child is at increased risk for yeah. and make sure that this child gets the care that they need if that happens. Well, I think that might be a good stopping point for um, our talking about vaccinations today. But I do want to ask each of you my parting questions. Mm -hmm. Karen. Yes. How would you fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me that. Nobody ever told me that having children would be as hard as it is beautiful. <laughs> Good one. Wow. Top that, Nathan. No, I will Top not. That. <laughs> no, you, st you still have to answer. <laughs> Nobody ever told me that. Oh, I'm going to get the same one. I should have been thinking yeah. in advance. Um, <laughs> hmm. Um, nobody ever told me that I would be able to have this much fun talking about a topic that uh, helps kids uh, as much as I do. And I love doing it. That's All a right. good one too. Yeah. So my last question for each of you, and you get a different variation of it, mm -hmm. is um, Nathan, where are you in your life as a dad? Um, well, I am at the phase where I get to, to share a whole lot of the things that I like uh, with my kids and they're old enough to really appreciate it. So I'm getting to... Some, watch some of the movies and play a lot of the games and stuff that I've always wanted to do with my kids. So I'm kind of at that fun phase right there where I'm like, yeah, guys, have you ever played this card game? This is super fun. And then we're into <laughs> it for like two weeks and uh, it's pretty great. How old are your boys? How old are they? My boys are 13 and nine. All right. That's some meaty years. 13. Things start mm -hmm. smelling bad. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was great. Karen, how about you? Where are you in your life as a mom? You know, I am always multiple places. I think that's the truest thing about motherhood is it's always everything all at once. Um, but my boys are nine years apart and then five years apart. And so I am, you know, helping one child become a father. I'm helping another child try to survive his first year of high school. And then with the youngest one, we just kind of have a blast. He's human sunshine. And uh, he and I just sort of play a lot. And I'm really soaking up that childhood imagination play moment as it fades into the distance and enjoying it. Yeah, great answers. Well, this has been a really fun conversation, and um, I know it's going to be a lot of food for thought for a lot of parents who are listening. And I want to thank both of you for being really respectful of um, how you talk about parents who are making different decisions. I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. I appreciate it a lot. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, we'll talk again down the road. All right. All right. Thank you so thank much. Thank you very much for having us on. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 
Thanks again to our sponsor, Prep Dish, and head on over to PrepDish.com forward slash common sense to grab your two-week free trial. Another big thanks to our sponsors, Mommy Steps Insoles. Go get yourself a pair at maternityinsoles.com and use coupon code COMMONSENSE at checkout for a special 20% discount just for our listeners. Thanks, Mommy Steps. I love my insoles and I love having happy feet. Our guests today were Karen Ernst, Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines and co-host of Vax Talk with pediatrician Dr. Nathan Boonstra. You can learn more about their work over at voicesforvaccines.org. Head on over to genefaulkner.com to find out more about me. Email me, gene at genefaulkner. Tweet me at genefaulkner. And please, oh, please go leave me a nice review over on Apple Media, Stitcher, FM Player, or wherever you get your pods. Also, go find us on Instagram. Instagram. Pick up a copy of my book, Common Sense Pregnancy, which is available wherever books are sold. Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. Thanks, Alex. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting and Politics is also a member of the Parents on Demand Network, a curated collection of podcasts that cover all things pregnancy and parenting. One of those is Preggy Pals with POD founder Sunny Galt. Here's a short preview. Give a listen and then head on over to POD. Bye, everybody. We'll talk again next week.